1: I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R.
2: Hey everyone, Carmen Carrion here. Freaky Folklore is part of a horror-themed podcast network called EerieCast. And today we are proud to announce our newest terrifying show, Redwood Bureau. Redwood Bureau features host Josh Tomar as an agent on the run from a secret organization called Redwood Bureau this organization captures and researches unexplained and supernatural creatures and phenomena but their tactics are often more dangerous than the very entities they hunt each episode features not only a story of an encounter with a different phenomenon but you get an explanation of the lore history and biology of the phenomenon as well listen to redwood bureau on your favorite podcast platforms today by simply searching for redwood bureau or go to ericast.com for more options, or to listen straight from our website. But today, I'm happy to say that we are featuring the first episode of Redwood Bureau right here. So listen and enjoy, and remember, if you like what you hear, follow Redwood Bureau, and leave the show an honest review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews, the better.
3: alpha that's used.
4: Beware the Redwood Bureau, a secret organization which captures and researches creatures and objects that defy explanation. Their reckless procedures have led to countless innocent lives lost. I am Agent Conroy. I worked for the Redwood Bureau, but I have escaped them to leak their reports to the unsuspecting public. You have the right to know. North of the Redfield was not the big sparrow.
0: Redwood Bureau Phenomenon 0225. Codename Hiders.
2: RBP Report 0225 initiated.
4: The life of a suburban California family was forever changed upon contact with an instance of 0225 known as a hider by the Bureau. One victim killed by the creature would later be found with their body exploded seemingly from the inside out. The local investigators and police force were left confused. When the Bureau stepped in, reports of similar killings had already occurred nationwide over the last few decades. While rare. Left alone, hiders will quickly decimate local ecosystems, humans included. The Bureau quickly noticed where a familiar killing popped up. A dozen more would soon sprout up until the capture of the entity. Over those terrifying decades, Redwood Bureau eventually contained over 22 instances of hiders, of which their combined kill count amounted to at least 250. And these were at first small town killings. It was this instance of 0225 that most concerned me. There was something off about this written report from a survivor. Once I'd read it, I knew there were more to these Hiders than first expected. It was the first killing in a record-setting streak of 54 local casualties to a single instance of a Hider. When these entities find their way to larger populations, their lethality quickly becomes apparent. But these creatures were not just finding their way to communities.
0: I was a working-class kid growing up, blue-collar all the way down to the boots, but Dad was a big believer in education as well as hard work. Holly Murick Sr. made sure his boy kept his nose to the academic grindstone. Scholarships were won, and what that couldn't cover, he and Mom put in the overtime hours to pay those bills, and it worked. I got a job right out of grad school at a salary that no one in my family had ever dreamed of before. I bought a home in a trendy neighborhood up in the hills. My kids went to private school. Me and my wife drove new cars. I was even a member of the local country club, but I never felt like I was in the club. I had earned my slice of the American pie. There was something about the way my neighbors looked at me. When I brought the barrels out on garbage day, or I pulled up to my driveway after a long day at the office, I'd catch them looking at me as I loosened my tie or looked for my keys. Usually, out of a need to break the awkwardness of the moment more than anything else, I would raise my hand and wave at them, just being neighborly like I'd been taught. There would be a hitch as they raised their hand in response, as if they weren't quite sure how they should respond. They'd have an odd expression on their faces, as they did the mental arithmetic to work out how I'd ever managed to find my way into their world. I feared that there was still something country about the way I carried myself. Maybe it was the way I squared my shoulders when I spoke to you. Just a hint of backwoods grit that cut all the fine and erudite knowledge I'd acquired. I had money, sure, but these folks were wealthy. Generationally wealthy. And they could smell new money on you. In the pit of my soul, I was scared that one day I'd say or do something that would reveal the bare dirt floor heritage that I was only a generation or so removed from, and then a government official would arrive with a clipboard and usher me out of the life I'd worked so hard to achieve. So you can imagine my reaction when my wife, who came from a long line of doctors, lawyers, and CEOs, suggested that we should try roadkill. What do you mean, try roadkill? I asked honestly, incredulous. Do you want me to go clip a raccoon with the Tesla?" She didn't laugh, but in the voice she used to explain to our son why the moon changes, she said, "'Of course not, that'd be cruel,' and held up her phone, adding,
3: "'There's an app.'"
0: Less than an hour later, a deer carcass, freshly collided with a semi, was delivered to my door. Hi, you ordered Roadkill, and it's here. Our governor had made the change a year or so back. If you're in California and you had the misfortune of hitting a wild animal with your car, you can legally keep it as long as you log it on the state-developed app. I suppose that it was only a matter of time before some young entrepreneur found a way to make money off this arrangement and sell it as the next level of the whole organic and local-sourced craze. When Kira said we were getting Roadkill delivered to our door, I pictured a rusty old pickup truck pulling up with a wild-eyed good old boy that answered to a nickname like Scoot or Red. What we got instead was a neck-bearded kid, his flannel shirt covered up by a white butcher's coat. He looked like he'd answer to Rold or Cornelius. He did drive an old tow truck, though. The hydraulics used to haul the carcass high off the ground and roadside deliveries carefully stenciled on the doors, along with a Buckhead logo the deer's body swinging in a slight pendulum motion as he pulled into our driveway. Had he driven on a highway like that? The hefty young man leapt down from the cab and in a hearty, formal, and far too loud voice asked, Well, where can I put your freshly dead buck? I had to help him haul it out back, still dressed in my work clothes, and dreading what juices and viscera were being left behind by the effort. That thing was heavy. You deliver a lot of these? I asked as we caught our breath by the recycling bins.
1: Actually... You're the first, sir. Actually, you're the first, sir.
0: Later that evening, I was looking out at the fancy French doors that Kira had insisted on installing when we bought the place. The bashed and battered dead thing was twisting outside on the elm, perfectly eye-level with me. Once we'd strung the deer up, I asked the driver how long it would take him to dress it. The sudden and blank expression that dawned on his face told me everything I needed to know before he even said, Though, we don't do that. Enjoy your roadkill. And quickly showed himself out the side gate. We don't do that. Enjoy your roadkill. Isn't that just part of the experience? She asked me in a guileless voice. Eleven years of marriage, and she still surprised the hell out of me. We came from very different worlds, I had to remind myself. She thought of apple picking as a lark, something to do when the air got crisper. To me that sound was harvest time and the kind of work I went to college to avoid. She made sure Robbie and Heather went to bed a little early and avoided the kitchen where they'd have a full view of Mommy's latest purchase. Once they're out, I'll be down to help, she had promised, though I wasn't looking forward to this task. We had a hard enough time putting IKEA together without getting in an argument. The damage to the creature was extensive, bone and intestine visible at various points around its chest and abdomen. I sat at our kitchen table searching for hunting videos, while working through a bottle of whiskey that I'd been saving for a special occasion. The fact is that I had seen this kind of thing done a couple times in my youth, My Uncle Johnny, who most folks called Junior, was quite the avid hunter and, for reasons that were never explained to me, always brought his kills around our place to skin. He'd called me out there and would carefully instruct me on how to separate hide from meat in the most efficient way possible. I had a soft spot for animals, so even 35 years on, the images of Junior doing his thing were burned into my brain. But the minutia had slipped away with most of my accent. The thought of going out there with our biggest woostoff and peeling the poor thing just made me feel sick. I took another gulp of whiskey and looked up, just as the back turned once more in my direction, giving me a view of its jaw jutting out in an awkward and unnatural angle. I looked away in disgust, just as the host of the video playing on my phone suggested putting something down, if you're gonna do this on your own property. I thought back to that week Kira thought she was going to do painting with the kids after school every day and wondered if we still had any of the tarps she bought out in the garage. The buck was facing towards me again, but that… that… didn't seem possible. The wind had been blowing just enough to send it spinning in a lazy and slow orbit, but the legs and the abdomen were pointed towards the neighbor's fence, but the head was still twisted to face the house. It's dead eyes still trained only on me. I was just about to say to hell with it. Go upstairs and tell Kira there was no way I was gonna go through with it. If she wanted organic meat so bad, we'd just go get a butcher's box or something. My phone buzzed with a fresh text message.
1: The kids are almost asleep. Is it done yet?
0: With a deep sigh I felt all the way in my backbone. I stepped outside, momentarily irritated by the beep of the security system as I stepped out the back door and headed out to the garage. It was several more minutes in there, digging through boxes of Christmas decorations and packing blankets until I found the tarp. I dragged it through the side door that opened to the yard. A minute later, I was carefully, and after another message admonishing me for the noise the plastic made, quietly arranging it under the buck. I held the knife in both hands, the tip pressed just against the breastbone, praying that my health club muscles would be up to the task. I breathed in deeply, catching a hint of copper and gaminess in the air surrounding the body. Just then, an ear-splitting shriek filled the night. For one insane moment, I genuinely thought, it isn't dead, and quickly tried to think of the most humane, And acceptable to the HOA, way to end the poor thing's suffering. Then I realized the hellish caterwauling was behind me, and I spun in its direction. My fine German steel raised to defend myself against its source. (sighs) I nearly laughed out loud when I saw it was the monstrous old Maine Coon the neighbors had named Woodrul. He'd been in the habit of traipsing through our neighborhood whenever he felt like it, long before we'd moved in and I hadn't helped matters by sneaking him out table scraps whenever I could. Both the kids and I had been lobbying for a pet for a while, but Kira had vetoed it, so... She was concerned about the mess a pet might bring into our home. I'll let the obvious irony of that stand on its own. Point is, Woody was at home on our property as he was anywhere in the neighborhood. But there I was, staring at his giant blue gray form, contorted as he released a horrendous series of cries, punctuated with venomous hisses in my direction. <laughs> Woody, what is your problem, dude? A stronger rendition of the odor from earlier suddenly plunged its way down my nostrils, and a hot breeze sailed past my face, followed by a sudden sharp sting across my cheek. <sighs> I put my hand against the wound reflexively, a slight dampness found there. Had Woody scratched me? My eyes landed on the carcass. For a moment I thought my little feline friend had latched onto its side, perhaps some primal hunting instinct overcoming centuries of domestication, and was trying to take the buck down like he was some predator out on the savannah and not a fat, happy house cat. Woody let out a yowl, followed by a god-awful snap. I saw a length of bowel wrapped around the cat's midsection and without thinking, I went to cut at it with a kitchen's knife. I was hoping I could free him without hurting the cat. Then the intestine pulled tight, and Woody pressed against those lengths of bare bone and after a moment's resistance, slid right through them. He made that desperate noise again as his body folded into two, pulled into the open wound. sounds insane, ridiculous even, but as he disappeared behind the gore, Woody looked back at me. His mouth was wide open, desperately trying to form some other sound of protest or warning. Then he was gone, and the sides of ribs pressed against each other. The entire thing had taken place in seconds. I was breathing heavy, like I'd sprinted my way through most of a 10K. My body shook with adrenaline, but I didn't move. I just kept looking at the deer, seeming no worse for wear than it had been when the delivery guy had dropped it off, and like it hadn't just eaten a cat in front of me. It's insane that that happened, right? I mean, I'm listening to myself say it, knowing it happened, but it sounds… My phone dinged. I would completely forgotten I was holding it. I brought it up to my face and saw the text from my wife.
1: Is that cat trying to get at the deer? Hurry, sweetie, before he makes
4: a mess.
0: From the periphery of my vision, I could see our bedroom window in the flickering light of the television. I imagined Kira sitting there comfortably, resting beneath her Egyptian cotton blanket, and it seemed like a scene from another world. That's when I caught the scent again. There was blood in the yard already, some on the deer, some slowly dripping off onto the patio. Some of it was smeared from where we dragged it, but this odor was different, more intense. My eyes focused and I saw the deer's stomach bulge and stretch slightly. The sides of the wound that Woody had disappeared into drew slowly back from each other with a deep, wet, sickening sound. The ribs, the bits not covered in gristle and tissue, glowed like gleaming ivory in the light of our kitchen window and then sprung apart from each other, revealing a deep black chasm contained within the deer's body. The tissue surrounding the bone tore and fell away as guts poured out of the now gaping wound, and still those ribs remained, held aloft in the air. It was only as the bowels gathered themselves under the bones and the creature started to pull itself up, towering over me, that I realized it. They weren't ribs, they were teeth. It stood on two legs, its multi-jointed arms hung well past what I presumed to be its hips, At the end of those limbs were not anything you'd recognize as paws or hands, but just scimitar-like claws that twitched soundlessly against the air. The flesh, gathered in bunches and pouches, and the color of exposed organs and muscles shot through with pulsing blue veins. Two purulent eyes rested on either side of the fleshy crown atop its shoulders, more like a fish than anything else. It had to be the thing's head, but the rest was just teeth. The impossible creature, gracefully, snake-like, twisted itself this way and that, the motion set drafts of warm, wet air towards me. As it fixed first its left, then right eye upon me, it did not roar, growl, or hiss as it sized me up, the only sound audible was the hitch of its breathing, sending up tiny puffs of steam escaping near the top of its maw, and the crinkle of the tarp's plastic underneath its wickedly taloned feet. I was scared, which would have been understandable given the events of those last few minutes, but it was a biological level of terror. This thing was an apex predator and my body recognized that on the food chain, I was below this thing by a country mile. My phone chimed again. The noise, for whatever reason, broke my paralysis and I flung myself towards the house as the creature lunged forward, leading with its now open mouth still utterly silent, except for the click of its talons across the ground. I scrambled across the ground like a primate, the knife and phone still clutched in my hands, both tapping against the concrete as I skinned my knuckles, and then pulled myself up to run. I tumbled forward almost immediately, my tennis shoes catching on an uneven patch of the patio. I imagined myself falling on my knife and the kids finding me there in the morning, pale as a dead fish and in the center of a sticky pool. Won't be a problem. A voice in my head reassured me. That thing will eat long before they get up. As I crashed forward, I opened both of my hands, letting utensil and phone go, my brain unable to differentiate between the two in the moment, and used both hands, palms pressed against the ground to bring me back to my feet. Click, 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 click. The creature's now familiar tang filled my nostrils, and I felt an intense sting blossom on my shoulder a surge of fresh dampness starting to spread across the fabric of my t-shirt. I knew in minutes, when the adrenaline my body was dumping into itself drained away, that I was going to experience pain like I had never felt before. I picked myself up off the ground and fell towards the still-open side door, pulling it shut behind me as I collapsed into the garage. Click, 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 click. I rolled to my back, finding that not only was my right arm unable to do anything to help me, but trying to move it at all sent waves of nausea through my gut and set every nerve ending I had firing in agony. I looked through the frame and saw the monster, because what else would you call it, growing larger as it got closer. I kicked the door closed in what passed for its face, just in time for it to fling its bizarre body against it. The wall of the garage shook with the force. I sprang up, the fresh adrenaline allowing me to ignore the pain this brought and threw the lock into place. Once, twice, three times more, the thing smashed against the barrier. And then silence. I breathed as slowly and shallowly as I could, not wanting to break this moment of tenuous calm. At the base of the door, I could see the creature's feet breaking the line of dim light coming from outside. It was waiting. I had wanted the garage to be separate from the house, planning to someday set up a workshop man cave refuge for myself, a place where I could hide from Kira's list of honeydew chores and the kids' algebra homework. That simple desire had trapped me out here. Muffled through the garage walls, I heard my phone receive a text message. Another followed. The monster was turning towards the phone, lying somewhere out there in the darkness. I was just starting to think rationally again, every action I'd taken up to that moment having come to me in a primitive panic. That had faded enough for me to remember that my wife and kids were in the house, and fear of a very different kind filled me. I debated throwing the door open and sprinting back across the patio, hoping I could make it back inside before the thing made a meal of me. I looked around for something to use as a weapon. There were a few gardening tools, mostly electric, and Heather's aluminum softball bats. But given my state, I really didn't see me wielding them to any success. I imagined the creature cutting me in half with a casual swipe and dismissed the notion of running out that way, armed or unarmed entirely. The garage door was electric, slow and loud. That thing was going to hear it and I didn't think our fence would prove much of an obstacle once it did. Could I get to the front door and get the spare key out from that ridiculous fake rock in the flower bed before it got me? It seemed like that was my best option. I held my working hand over the button and forced air in and out of my nostrils as slowly as I could manage. I closed my eyes. I went to church a lot as a kid, but I hadn't prayed in years, although I'm pretty sure I did then. Then I smacked the button. Slowly the garage door rose, revealing the street outside. It seemed like an invitation back to the sane world I had occupied only minutes before a place where there were no such things as monsters. My eyes swept back and forth, expecting the creature to be revealed under the onion-peel glow of the streetlights at any moment, the sheen of its exposed tissue glistening. The longer I stood there, the more inevitable it seemed. I moved, the night air was cool, and I was very aware of every minute sound I made as I crossed the lawn. I stared right at the tiny length of fence that separated the backyard from the front, fully expecting the thing to come bursting through it Kool-Aid man style. After what felt like an impossibly long time, I arrived at my front door. I'll tell you this for free. When the motion sensor lights came, I nearly wet myself. I dug into the facsimile stone we got off Amazon and cursed the sheer force of will required to steady my shaking hands enough to fit the key into the lock. I would get Kira and the kids, grab the keys, and we'd get the hell out of there. Then I heard the security chime of the back door open, and my wife's voice call out into the backyard. Paul? I heard the creature click as it ran towards her, and the mother of my kids let out a blood-curdling scream (coughs) that ended in a moist thump. The kids were stirring by the time the police came, rubbing their eyes by the back door and asking me groggily what was going on. Their mother's scream, the single one she'd been able to manage before that thing laid into her, had been enough to wake them up. I didn't know where that thing was, so I shrieked at them to stay back, to stay away. They started to cry as they backed away, confused. I think Robbie saw his mom lying there on the ground before Heather took him back inside because his face went slack with shock. The neighbors heard it too, of course. We lived in the suburbs, after all. They'd been the ones to call the police. When they arrived, I was huddled over her body, cradling her like I used to hold the kids when they'd been little. They took me away, first to the hospital and then to the station. Of course they did. Neighbors hear something in the night The cops come by and find a lunatic pressing his wife's corpse to him, raving about monsters and teeth. What else were they supposed to do? They didn't hold me long, though. The extent of my wife's injuries, edges of the wounds that weren't clean like a knife would make, ragged tears, deep furrows raked across her flesh. It just didn't match up with even the most brutal domestic violence cases they'd ever seen. By the time they released me, The sun was already rising over the station, and I had calmed down enough to stop screaming about things hiding inside of dead deer. It was an animal, I said. Just something out of the wild that showed up where it didn't belong. Confused, hungry, drawn by the smell of the buck's blood, or just rabid. I didn't know. And you know, in the daylight hours that followed, I could just about make myself believe it. They asked about roadside deliveries. And I told them as much as I knew, but that it had been Kira's idea. When my mind would find it impossible to focus on the world directly in front of me, picturing glory, gleaming white teeth hiding in everything from the kitchen pantry to elevator doors, I'd go on the internet and just wander. As far as I can tell, there is no record of such an app or business called Roadside Deliveries anywhere in the state of California. Anywhere in the whole country... At least not any dropping roadkill off for a price late at night back in our home i would look out from our bedroom onto the patio the cement having been stained with her blood and no amount of bleach and scrubbing was ever going to take it all away i'd hear the wind roaring through the trees and i would feel so very small so very defenseless and i'd check in on the kids again about a week ago i called the detective in charge of the investigation they'd told me I could have Kira's body back when the M.E. was done with the autopsy. He sounded uncertain when he spoke my name out loud, searching his mental Rolodex for who I was and why it should matter to him. I tried to imagine a life like that, where you meet people at the absolute worst moment in their lives with such regularity that they all just blend into one tragic blur. Finally, the light bulb came on and he said,
4: Ah, Mr. Murick, yes. I've been meaning to call you.
0: The intonation in his voice suggested something quite different. He spent several moments clearing his throat and adjusting himself in his chair.
4: I don't know how to tell you this, and we won't know for several days afterwards, but, uh, your wife's body never arrived at the morgue.
0: What? Slipped softly and breathlessly from my lips. They'd been waiting for the coroner's report, and as a few days went by, the officer called the medical examiner's office to ask what the holdup was. Not only had my wife's body never made it... Neither had the vehicle carrying her, the personnel inside never reporting for duty again. Eventually, they found the vehicle, looking more like a cargo van than an ambulance, nosed down in a ditch a few miles away from its destination. There was no sign of the crew, but they'd found Kira's body, now ripe with several days' exposure, still on the gurney. Her ribs and abdomen looked like they exploded the flesh and bone fanning away from her decimated, desiccated body like outstretched wings. The story got coverage on the local news for several days. The phrase that sticks out to me, the one I repeat late at night when my hand drifts over to Kira's side of the bed was the inside of the vehicle looked like it had been torn apart by a wild animal.
4: predators are certainly apex predators. Their skin, resembling intestine, is nearly impossible to tear or penetrate, lending to its peculiar ability to fold and bend to minuscule proportions. Instances of 0225 can hide in corpses as small as those belonging to white-tailed deer and medium-sized dogs. They seem to have the additional ability to change their mass through some yet unknown process, which allows them to choose a great variety of corpses to hide within. 0225 contain few bones and organs of their own. What few bones they have make up their teeth, which cleverly resemble the ribs of the corpse they hide within, and large talons upon the ends of its extremities. After the Bureau's first capture of an instance of 0225, they tested its longevity and resilience. Explosives and gunfire cannot tarnish or penetrate their hide, though it can damage their teeth and talons, which promptly grow back within minutes. Scientists then place the phenomenon within the Redwood Bureau's Aging Chamber, a volatile containment room for Phenomenon 0003, an entity that causes rapid aging within a given perimeter. Each minute within the Aging Chamber is comparable to five years' actual time. It was observed that the instance of 0225 remained alive well into four hours, before scheduling conflicts forced the research team to pull the hider from the aging chamber. Essentially, the creature aged 1200 years without a single indicator that it had physically aged. To this day, the Bureau considers hiders immortal, likely due once again to its remarkably durable flesh. As of now, the 22 instances of 0225 remain in the custody of Redwood Bureau at the threat level of Lethal, which is just below disastrous. Lethal indicates the entity can and will cause local or regional chaos and death. Many agents believe the hider to be closer to a disastrous level threat, which leads me to the most terrible aspect of this case, that fake company roadside deliveries appears to have been created by redwood bureau my own observations into the so-called service Led me into citing Bureau agents I once personally knew while on the force, wearing roadside deliveries uniforms. They find susceptible people, push a single advertisement to their devices, and wait for the request on their downloadable app. An app which quickly deletes itself after a predetermined amount of time, or upon the powering off of the device. I can only guess at what their reasons are for deliberately releasing hiders into communities across the country. My best guess? They want to see if 0225 can earn the threat level of Disastrous. It's simply a piece of their research which happens to place entire towns in jeopardy. You must heed my warning. If you see an ad for roadside deliveries which offers to bring you fresh roadkill, ignore it. In fact, consider leaving town. RBP report
2: 0225 deactivated.
0: I'm Josh Tomar, host of Redwood Bureau. Thank you for listening. Redwood Bureau is a horror fiction podcast and part of the EerieCast podcast network. For more dreadful terrors, follow Redwood Bureau on Spotify and iTunes and check out our other podcasts like Unexplained Encounters and Freaky Folklore on your favorite podcast platform. You can find me on Twitter and Twitch under username Tomamoto, T-O-M-A-M-O-T-O, and my voiceover is featured in a wide variety of your favorite video games, anime, and other animated shows. Until next time, don't forget, this world is a strange one.